Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine, and I'm now joined in the studio by Jonathan McKenzie. Hello. Hello. Yes, how are you today? Yeah, very good. Fantastic. Also, ah, off. Auf Wiedersehen. No, what do I normally say? <laughs> Guten Tag, Herr Stafford Bloor. Wie geht's du? Guten Tag, Herr Devine. Wie geht's gut? Wie geht's gut? I love to hear that your gates are good. Seb, of course, <laughs> back in Germany and uh, will be uh, joining us for today's podcast to discuss the following. Mm, Sadio Mane to Bayern Munich has been completed. Uh, we'll talk about that. There was also uh, some discussion of Raheem Sterling to Chelsea as we speak. That is currently still a report. So, you know, we'll, we'll discuss that. Other transfer Fabio Vieira, we're going to talk about who's uh, joining Arsenal. Mario Goetze, expected to join Eintracht Frankfurt. I can guess who put that one in the plan, Seb Uh Also, Mark Roker is moving to Leeds, apparently, so we'll ask John about that. Other things, we're going to talk about the Bundesliga tax. We're going to talk about Frankie de Jong. Crypto sponsors. Premier League 2. Juan Malio leaving. At least one of these things we won't get to. <laughs> but also, the Pogmentary. I watched the Pogmentary. Or the Pogumentary? Pogumentary. Did you watch all of it? No, I just watched two episodes right, of it. Okay. I need to check, actually. It has I've been saying Pogmentary. It is Pogmentary. It should but be it Pogumentary. Should, yeah, it definitely should be Pogumentary. Why did they decide to go for... Because Pog... Pogment... Pogumentary. Yeah. Why did they decide to go Pogmentary? These questions and more <laughs> we will discuss later. And if you want to know why arbitrary decisions are made... You should visit The Athletic. Visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, theathletic.com forward slash TIFO for all the latest critical analysis of arbitrary issues, including football and other arbitrary issues. That's right, theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. Well, I guess that's all for the intro. We should probably begin discussing one of those things now. Let's do that. I'll leave you in the warm hands and the cool embrace of uh, Sadio Mane. Yeah, Sadio Mane to Bayern Munich has been completed, Seb. On the cheap? On the cheap, question mark? No, I don't think so. Player coming towards the end of his prime. Got a lot of uh, wear on his tyres. I, I don't think so. I what think, was the transfer fee? Uh, 30 million euros. I think there's a few incentives in there and a few clauses and what have you. But I, I think it's. I think Liverpool have done quite well out of it. I think also Bayern Munich have got a really good player for a very reasonable fee. I think everyone everyone wins. We don't always have to have a winner and loser in transfer deals. Not always. Well, that is what helps make it dramatic. There was a, it's in discussion of the Raheem Sterling to, to Chelsea uh, rumour as well. We have a, a tweet in here from Grace Robertson on Twitter uh, who describes the reported Sterling fee of 35 million as, as you know, not dissimilar to Mane. And Grace says the market for attacking players over 26 has quietly crashed, John. Do you think that's true? I'm, tr- I'm trying, racking my brains to remember the last uh, striker over 26 that moved for a lot of money. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question because we're definitely in a point in time where the markets have to shift. I think Grace as well also tweeted uh, after this about the fact that top six sides are now going to have to get used to selling to one another if they want money because there's been that aggregation of finances all to the the big English sides. And Mm. so if you want to make money, then you have to sell to where the money is. So I think the market's definitely changing. And I've been someone who has expected that change to be maybe more apparent than it has been. But I guess these things always take a little bit of time to sort of come out in the wash. 
It's interesting that idea, isn't it? Because you think about, you know, the players never transferring between Man United and Liverpool, for example, or like big clubs with big club rivalries who don't want to strengthen opponents, but now have many <laughs> numerous players on their books that no other team in the world can afford. It's also, I feel like it's been a kind of, um, maybe it's wrong to say that this is a new thing, but it feels like a feature of the last five years that when a certain type of player or, or a player of a certain ability comes on the market, they really have very limited options of where they can go. A list of all of the big clubs in Europe, those Super League clubs, for want of a better descriptor, and then of that group, whichever ones, A, need a player in that position, and B, are spending money that summer, tends to be 50% or less of them, right? Yeah, and I think to talk about just moving between clubs has definitely been an impact of, of, of the financial markets because take, for example, someone like Dan James who moves from Manchester United to Leeds. I think 10 years ago, that probably wouldn't have happened, but it happened because of the rivalry and very little was made of it. I mean, Calvin Phillips, another player who was touted to maybe go the other way, has been very much quashed because of that. But mm. I definitely think that people now think of the market much more in terms of Whereas the available money rather than, you know, the, the more underlying rivalries that are going on to. Yeah. Well, Seb, uh, with Raheem Sterling specifically, the reports around this are that the fee would be about £35 million. He's 27 years old. He does only have one year left on his contract. So that can explain why it feels low. It does feel like quite cheap, doesn't it? It does. But then remember that Raheem Sterling has been playing top flight football since he was 17. So he's actually quite an old 27 he hasn't had many serious injuries. He's got a lot of games under his belt. The only reason I think it's probably a little bit cheap is because one of my half-baked theories was that you know, the introduction of five substitutes in English football would mean that most clubs, especially most clubs inside the top six, would try and hold on to players even with greater competition in their places. So for someone like Sterling, who's got a guaranteed output, you think, right, well, in a five-substitute world in Premier League football over the course of 38 games, also when you're a team who, who have yet to conquer the Champions League mountain, it's kind of a strange decision. I know that Julian Alvarez is in his way and um, obviously Erling Haaland has already arrived, but it's, it's odd. And I, I wonder whether this is just a case of a might be led by the player. Raheem Sterling grew up in, in London, of course. He's from London. He's never played really, he's, he's never played any of his professional career, his senior professional career in London. It might just be one of those. And uh, yeah, I mean, he's got a good, as good a chance of winning the European Cup with Chelsea as he probably does in Manchester City. And also, it's not going to harm his England career. So yeah, I get it. I mean, it's just, I'm interested in these kind of transfers because if you remember, before the Super League kind of went supernova and before it became formalized, there are all those discussions about kind of Andrea Agnelli's vision of what it might become. And one of those sort of informal recommendations or ideas was that trading between clubs included within the Super League would be banned. Now, it was never part of the formal Super League proposal. That was just a kind of away from the table working on Agnelli's behalf. But it's kind of, it's interesting and, and kind of indicative of the mindset. Like, let's weaken the other teams around us, but let's never weaken or strengthen each other. That's kind of a pretty cynical mindset, but it is instructive. Sure. A situation of balance of power. I quite like to uh, imagine in that scenario that you'd have players leaving one Super League team to spend one season at a yeah. senior non-Super League team before going back to the Super League with a, a different team. I imagine that there would be various loopholes exploited. Good God. Thankfully, we're not in that situation. John, what do you think of Raheem Sterling? I feel like he's a player who is critically underrated by some, but then overrated by others. Yeah, do you think there's something in the fact that he plays for Manchester City? Mm. Because City is such a system team that you always get these players who go there and people say, oh, you know, they're just not as good as they were when they were elsewhere. I mean, Jack Grealish is a great example of that. Mm. 
do we think the same is maybe true of, of Raheem Sterling as well and mm. any of any of those players when they're rotated all the time and they don't ever sort of get those long momentum runs and stuff whether or not people just sort of undervalue them because they sort of don't feel as flashy maybe mm. as as they can be in other teams also it strikes me that at least in the last season or two whenever Sterling has played his remit has often been to hug the touchline so he's not going to score as many goals from those positions as he would do if he was more central I think one of the things that is often a, a criticism of him is that he doesn't score enough but like you say in, in a system team as a system player in a role that perhaps isn't necessarily supposed to be the main goal scorer maybe he's a, a bit unfairly criticised for that yeah, and he was good for England as well in the in the most recent tournament. So I, I think that, that that sort of shows that in a different in a different system, he may mm. look quite different. Can you see, <laughs> can you see him working at Chelsea, sir? Again, we should emphasise we don't know whether this is going to happen or not. This is we're recording this on a Monday, and maybe it'll all have been poo pooed by the time this is released. Yeah, I think so. More or less because I, I still don't have a fixed idea of what Chelsea's forward line is. And if you were to add a player, kind of, it's just a concoction of of abilities, isn't it? And Raheem Sterling is very much that kind of player. You can just chuck him in and you can give him a role left. I'd probably prefer him on the left, but you can play him on the left, play him on the right, play him through the middle. He brings something different to each of those roles. And if you add him into a kind of a soup that involves Kai Havertz and Timo Werner and Mason Mount and Hakim Ziyech potentially, that's quite interesting. It sort of adds that idea of uh, fluidity, I suspect. But I feel a little bit as if this might be a more of a new owner signing if it happens. You want a name, don't you? Because you're you're succeeding Roman Abramovich. It's a pretty difficult gig from a kind of a player recruitment standpoint and reputational standpoint with Chelsea fans. You want a name and it's a pretty good first transfer if you can conclude it to take a England international in theoretically the prime of his career away from the league champions. That's quite a nice move. It's quite a nice little bit of cachet to that, I think. But he yeah. works too. It's not It's not a vanity signing if it happens. But does he sit, I mean, John, does he sit in one of those inside forward roles? Because Chelsea obviously play the three at the back. Kai Havertz is clearly the the favoured player to start up front. It sounds also at the moment like Lukaku is, is, is nearing that loan move away to, to Inter, as many people expected. Chelsea still have quite a stacked forward line, even even without him. Like, Does he, does he sit in one of those roles behind Havertz? I think they, they do play him in that role, yeah. And I think Chelsea this season have probably had transition issues. So it feels as though they're brilliant at progressing the ball through the first two thirds of the field maybe a little bit too plodding and it sometimes feels as then as though they're then faced with a team that they then have to break down mm. and I wonder whether or not bringing someone like Sterling who's going to be really good at carrying the ball and getting into that space behind whether or not that's an attempt to start fixing some of those problems well do you like him alongside you know so Kai Havertz as a starter Mason Mount is the other you know seemingly to me is the other starter do you like Sterling alongside those two players he does have different qualities yeah you would expect Sterling to be someone who would move into those wider spaces and you mentioned before a Man City that he likes to pin opposition fullbacks wide and that's just a pep thing right where you get get your two wide players really wide spread that back line as as much as possible and, and maybe Tuchel is thinking that that might be a way to maybe have a little bit more joy at creating chances yeah Okay. Well, Seb, thumbs up? Yeah. Thumbs down? I think so. I, I'm, I Strangely, for a transfer, which involves a very big name and probably quite a large fee, I'm not that enthused by it one way or the other. I don't have strong feelings. It's kind of weird, isn't it? It is a little bit weird. It's a sort of, I'm bored of this, I'm going to go and do this now kind of situation. Yeah. So I find it hard to get fired up. I don't know. Ask me again in six weeks when we're close to the season. Maybe I'll be more interested. Sure. But it's I, a transfer bot transfer, isn't it? It is a little bit. It pops up on 
on, on Twitter when it's one of those yeah. funny accounts where they're like, you know, I don't know, Matt Letizia to Brighton or something. Sure. It also feels very football manager in or like any kind of video game sim, the sort of thing that might happen that does yeah. in your game. You know, I remember when I played the FIFA video game many years ago, and I'm elongating the front end of this anecdote because I can't remember the name of the player. So I'm hoping the name of the player will come to me as I continue to talk. I was playing as a football team in the Premier League, of course, um, the, the top division of English football. And there was Jeremy Tulalong. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Do you remember Jeremy Tulalong? Yes, I do. Yes. He was, he, I don't know why, but like every, this particular version of the game, I don't know, no idea what year it would have been. <laughs> Many years in the past. Jeremy Tulalong, every time I started a new career mode with a different team, would be signed by one of the big Premier League teams. And I'd never heard of him. And he never came to England, did he? What became of Jeremy Tulalong, Seb? So he was part of the, um, the the Malaga revolution. Do you remember when Malaga suddenly became very, very wealthy and then just as quickly suddenly turned all the money taps off? Tulalong sure, was that. one of the guys who went over. Distinctive because he was, I, I think he, he went grey at about 25. So he was very noticeable, but he was a good player. And also he was caught up in that, I don't know, I'm not sure if it's quite grand enough to be referred to as a phenomenon, but French players that were good were always, always, always going to play for Arsenal eventually. Do you remember that? I do remember. Yeah, because of Arsene Wenger. Uh, so Toulon, I don't know how he did at Malaga, but he, he went to Monaco afterwards, I think. Did reasonably well, I guess. I'm kind of ad-libbing. I don't really remember. Sure. I remember the face and yeah. I remember the player. I don't remember much of the context around him. Would you, he does look very old. He did, yes. Yes. No, I mean, even now. Well, he's well, probably now. about 40 he's now. Well, he's he, is, he has aged. He's only 38 yeah. years old. One of those incredible players who looked older the older they got. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I just think it's, uh, it's interesting to look at him. At the peak, his market value in 2009, I guess it would have been around then, 2009, when I was playing this game, and he was at Marseille, he was 22 million euros at 25 years old, which is quite a lot of money back then. Jeremy Toulalong. There we go. What a pointless discussion. That was kind of that fun, was. though. That was fun to say his, fun to say his name yeah. as well. Also Toulalong. a great name. I think that's why one of the reasons it, well, despite the fact that I initially forgot it, it has stuck in my memory. Toulalong. Toulalong. Jeremy Toulalong. It's got the French on. It's got the French on, exactly, yeah. I do like the French on. Okay, fine. There's other transfers as well. Let's talk about one of them now. <laughs> uh, sensible transfer's favourite, Java Schlager. Uh, Zava Schlager. Sorry, I've said his name wrong. That's good. Uh, Zava Schlager has joined RB Leipzig. Now, uh, Seb, you've written this in here as sensible transfer's favourite. Is it bad that I don't ever remember hearing his name before ever? Well, it's not good. I mean, it's not bad, but it's not good. Sure. He appeared in a, uh, he was one of uh, our old friend Alex Stewart's recommendations for Real Madrid a couple of years ago. Right. Hasn't made it to Real Madrid, but has gone to RB Leipzig and that's a good deal. So you said that with glee then. I felt like you were enjoying reveling in Alex's fame. Not at all. Way, not at all. Because RB Leipzig there. are very smart recruiters. So it's, if anything, sure. it's an endorsement of Alex's. Decision. Just to be clear, you're not cussing I out Alex on the podcast. I am absolutely not doing that, no. Because it sounded a bit like that's what no, you wanted that's, to do, start, I mean, start like some kind of war. Or, that's kind of what you wanted me to say but I haven't and so now you're trying to finesse it in a way that makes it seem as if I've sure. and, and that's just not the case what I was going to say though is so RB Leipzig one of the question marks hanging over their summer is what happens to Conrad Lima he's the central defensive midfielder yeah well he's the best player they have in that position at the moment but it's rumoured that he's leaving not quite sure to where yet and that's still not certain but Zava Schlager enjoyed a well like everybody at Wolfsburg absolutely rotten 2021-2022 it was an absolute disaster caught up with the kind of the Mark Van Bommel situation and the sack in mid-season yeah new start and a good club for him 
the perfect player yeah. in the perfect situation. I think he'll do very, very well. But then that's one of those transfers. Oh, the reason it's on here is because one of those transfers that happens, which has a kind of a domino effect. So it happens and then you expect other things to happen as a result of it. Um, with a, an, an effect uh, spread across Europe. So we shall see. Can I make a, um, a sort of a, a comical suggestion as to what might happen as a result of that domino effect? You know, Conrad Leimer, do you think there's any chance he might go to Manchester United as something that the scouting team were working on four months ago under Rangnick? You know, that kind of delayed thing? That'd be funny, wouldn't it? I don't think you would fit in very well no, with Manchester United. Yeah. Well, that, no, that's why it would be funny. That's why I'm mm-hmm. saying, because it's a sort of, it's, you know, never mind. You, you said kind of like answer. funny with a, a dead lifeless expression in your eyes. <laughs> I didn't believe that you would find that funny at all. <laughs> I think I knew then. Zavashlager. funny. Zavashlager, though, an interesting guy, because if you look at his CV, he goes from FC Liefering, which is the bottom level Red Bull side. Mm. He then goes to. Red Bull Salzburg, mm. obviously. He's the Red own boy of the yeah. Red Bull network. Yeah. yeah. So he's gone via Wolfsburg, but him turning up at Leipzig eventually is not that surprising. It's like no. a sort of Ross and Rachel moment in football land. Yeah. <laughs> Keep it in the company. Mm-hmm. Okay. There we go. Fine. Other interesting things that have happened. Fabio Vieira to Arsenal. And this one's quite interesting, John, isn't it? Because he's a player with a very high ceiling. Yeah. He's a cut across midships. Everyone's... A, 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 um, a, understanding of how transfer windows work right because mm. like no one had heard of him sure and it used to be the case that like you know 20 years ago something like this might happen where a player is just touted and then suddenly you're like Cristiano Ronaldo this Portuguese wonder kid is going to Manchester United no one yeah. really knows who he you is just turn up on CFAT that would be the first yeah, yeah exactly yeah. and and now that never happens because we all know everyone and we all know things are happening way in advance and so yeah I did Except my Fabio Vieira yeah well, I did my due diligence on him this weekend I always like to have a little bit of a watch of players to see see what they're like and yeah you're you're right he has, has a very high ceiling and I think his high ceiling comes from the fact that he's a very creative player mm. and I think creativity is one of the hardest things to enact on a football pitch so if you can get a player who's good at that then then you're on to a winner but he's also quite a, 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 an interesting player in terms of his his profile beyond that because the player who kept running through my mind when I was watching him as Meza Ozil. So mm-hmm. um, Fabio Vieira is a very floaty player. He he likes to drift in between lines, pick the ball up and and, and progress it. He's got he's got a really wonderful through ball in him. You know, those those through balls where they play the ball and you think it's a misplaced pass at first. Sure. And then lo and behold it ends up at the feet of someone and you're like, how on earth did that happen? Like the FIFA fourteen triangle button pass. Yeah, if that helps you to visualise it then it yeah does. I'll yeah. take your word for it. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. You know, it came to my attention through smarter people than me telling me this that uh, Porto, the team that he's been signed from, at times sort of struggled a bit to fit him into their system. They, they do play a four four two, so that is a bit different to what Arsenal do. You know, he's not just a plug and play person. Yeah, he's not like an out and out striker, so you can't really play him as one of a, a two or as a, as a lone striker. He's also not really a, a, a standard midfielder. He's not brilliant out of possession as a midfielder mm. and so you're sort of caught with this guy sort of in betwixt and between things I guess you could you'd probably call him a, t- a 10 but they played a 4-4-2 with the diamond a lot and they used him as the 10 in the diamond mm. and they sort of push in, in out of possession moments they sort of push him in between the two strikers to press to sort of Get him out the way, get him out the way a little bit, but it, it allows him then to be to be quite fluid, and and you'll see him dropping right deep, 
picking the ball up and right deep. Right. The thing with Arsenal though is that they play Odegaard in the 10 role, right? Saka seems to be kind of nailed on right side. You would have, I would have thought if they were going to bring in an, an attacking player this season that it would have been uh, someone who you know is an option on the left uh, because uh, on the left-hand side they have Martinelli and, and I guess Pepe mm. can play there. But that feels like the weaker of the of the three positions behind the striker. It doesn't sound like Vieira plays there. Yeah, and this is why it's such a confusing transfer, I suppose, because as you've said, Udegor is that floaty player who can play deeper. He sort of starts out as an eight and gets forward on that right hand side into plays with his, with Saka and is playing those sorts of similar similar passes, right? Those mm. those through balls into the box that often look quite creative. And so the question is like, why spend however many millions for pushing forty? Was it? It was a lot of money. I can't um, remember. Yeah, yeah. for a back, well, yeah. backup player, I say. But then this is the interesting thing about Fabio Vieira is that he has this really high ceiling, as you say. But then when you've got someone like Erdogan who fits in to the system and can do, you know, he has his position, he can drop in as an eight, he can help out defensively. You're then bringing in a player who is maybe, like you say, has a higher ceiling than than Erdogan. I wouldn't. I'm not particularly good at talent ID, so I'll take the expert's word for it. But it feels as though you're losing something systematically mm. that you're maybe gaining in terms of like a very specific outlet in terms of creativity. Can I, it's weird. Can I um, think it's one of those, yeah. No, well, no, ahead. just because from what John was saying and also from the conversation, uh, from a conversation I had with someone who knows the game far better than I did, the way he was kind of described is it was almost impact sub territory. And I think we're trained to think of impact sub as kind of a negative description of a player. But in reality, if you think about some of Arsenal's worst performances last season where, yes, they concede goals and they would struggle to create chances, but at a much more basic level, sometimes they really struggle to change the tone of their performance and the nature of it and the type of possession that they were playing with. If you introduce someone like him, who is pure creation, who sees the game clearly in a very different way, like I'd never really paid any attention to him at all until I heard the news that Arsenal was signing him. But even if you just watch him in on highlight form, you can see the sort of the, I suppose that kind of uh, between the raindrops quality that his passing seems to have. If you were able to introduce someone like that for 20, 30 minutes in a game, obviously start him and others, but 20, 30 minutes in a game, doesn't that become worth the investment even if that's his sole value? Like I, especially mm-hmm. again, and I'm going to bang the drum for my half-baked theory, especially in five substitute world. Yeah, I like half-baked theory. Yeah. And I, my half-baked theory is that we're moving towards a period of specialization exactly with that. players, right? Yeah. You've got five subs, you can, you can bring in you know, players who you wouldn't want to play for the full 90, but you say you're chasing a game, so they, say the game state is in a particular way and you need to try and achieve one thing, then why not bring on a player who's really good at that one thing? Mm. You change the... I like half-baked um, ice cream. <laughs> The, you know, the Ben and Jerry's flavor of ice cream. Baked Alaska? No, no, half-baked. Is that what it's called? Ha- well, no, baked Alaska is a, it's a separate flavor. Uh-huh. Half-baked is a combination of uh, chocolate brownie and cookie dough together. Oh. Other brands of ice yeah, cream are definitely available. available. No. Yeah. no, no, no. Yeah, I think it's very interesting. There's also um, uh, Vitinha uh, Seb, who's another Porto player who's being rumoured at the moment with a move to PSG, I think. W- and I realise I'm not supposed to be asking you. I could not him. pick him out of the police lineup. No. I'm supposed to be asking John about him. John, there's this other. Should I take my glasses off? Yeah. Tend to be oh, there we go. There that we is go. one of my favourite comments so far about John's arrival here at the uh, TFA. Can you ham up your athletic. accent as well while you answer? <laughs> this please. is. Yeah, working working class Seb with glasses. Yeah. <laughs> Vision impaired working class Seb. I like it. I think it's nice. 
I don't know what I'm the doing. Tenia question the Tenia question mark. Oh, the yeah. sort of fits fits nicely with the the Erdogan thing that we talked about before. So yeah. you're getting. A, keep a, calling him Erdogan. Is that how you say his name? That's how. I know you have really no. I'm just curious. Strong beliefs on how to pronounce. <laughs> At this point in the episode, people will be saying, "Why does he keep interrupting people? I want to hear what someone's saying." The reason I interrupt, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just curious. When when someone says a footballer's name, I've been saying in a different way a lot. I'm always curious to interrupt everything that's happening to us. Well, I can them. assure you that I'm completely right on the pronunciation, Erdogan. but I am doing it in a way I as you, you as you like to yeah. anglify the correct pronunciation. Tell me again. Explain it to me. Erdogan. Erdogan. It's uh, how you pronounce it. You don't it. have the D in there at all. Martin Erdogan, if so, you're actually like Norwegian. That's so I would say Erdegaard, but that's wrong. Erdegaard. Erdegaard. You sort of soften the D. You soften the D. There may be, well, there may be dialectical differences within Norway huh. where people pronounce it differently. Erdegaard pronounce The reason why I pronounce his name in that way is because when he arrived at Arsenal, he did a an announcement video and he said, hello, I'm Martin Erdegaard. Oh, you but you can call them. me Odegaard. <laughs> so, but I decided to Erdegaard. just... Erdegaard. It is it, with a kind of yeah, oh, this is news to me, man. Okay, fine. Erdogan, fine. Uh, what were you saying? I've completely forgotten. Vitinia. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just saying that, that he, he's almost like a cipher, right? It's the same thing, right? Erdogan is, is has a much broader skill set. Yeah. Do you want me to stop saying his name? No, are you just going to... I'm just hearing you're it. You're going to snort every time I say it. Erdogan. Odegaard. Oh, there we go, yeah. But is, I'm correct in thinking that Porto also uh, have uh, Vitinha, right? So they have these two young players. Arsenal have now signed Fabio Vieira. Uh, Vitinha is uh, reportedly of interest to PSG. I think there were reports uh, connecting him to Manchester United as well. Anyway, litany of big teams. Um, and he seems to be a player who arguably maybe his ceiling is slightly lower, but, you know, it fits into teams more easily. Yeah, much more well-rounded, right? Which right. is what we were talking about with with that Norwegian player that I mentioned before. Sure. Um, so, yeah, and I, and I guess that touches on what we were talking about in terms of speci- specialism, right? Mm. Vitinho is a player who you will, you will start in, in your team and, and will get everything out of him that you need to and then maybe bring on... Fabio Vieira later on, if you if you want to get get. Do you think you'd be? I mean, obviously, we, we're taking this um, you know theory to um, extreme level. to extreme levels. But do you think, Seb, you'd be sad sad if you were Fabio Vieira to be a player? Maybe fifteen years, as we're describing him, fifteen years after relevancy of players like that. You know, we saw what happened to Özil, saw what happened to players like Wayne Rooney, any of those. Uh, natural tens uh, that sort of faded out of the game as the tactics, at least in the Premier League, have have changed. It's a bit, you know, a bit of a strange species to be at this time in football, isn't it? No, I, I think it's still a massive privilege to be considered that kind of player because it's a status only afforded to the most gifted, to the most creative, kind of the most decadent players. Also, I think that the way that football is going to be competed, or the kind of the, the type of competition you're going to see at the very highest level of the game almost going to be kind of modular within games like you're going to because of the amount of flexibility added substitutions um, should allow and because of the kind of squad building practices they might afford or might inspire you're going to see these kind of competitions within competition and games within games and so if you're someone like that you're charged with almost being I can never remember his name you remember the kid that used to come on and for the British hockey team and do something dramatic who remembers his name He's he's the hockey. Yeah, field hockey. hockey. He used to this come on contract. and his only he was by far the most famous British hockey player. He used to come on to hockey. Yeah, so he was like a rolling sub and he used to come on for for like a short corner. I don't even really know what that is, but I remember the name of it. And he was really 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 good at it. And as a result, he was the only person in the in the British hockey team that anyone knew and he used to spend seconds on a pitch. Now, obviously this isn't a um this isn't nearly like that. 
which <laughs> brings into question what I'm involved <laughs> in anyway whatsoever. <laughs> However, it's a status, isn't it? You are, we win and lose off what you do. That's a kind of, that's a real privilege. Sam Ward. No, no. Liam Kirk. No. no. Uh, Laura No, Unsworth. he had a very sort of public school name, like a Sebastian or a, you know. British hockey player, public <laughs> school Sebastian name. Stafford yeah, Law. Yeah. <laughs> Sam Quek. No, that's a very famous women's hockey player in Britain. Female. Uh, Alex Danson. No, th- no, no, this is going to be bad audio content, but it was a long time ago. It was about 20 years ago now. But Tina Collins. He used to wear a big headband <laughs> and he was very famous and Callum something. I forget his name. Joe, did you watch the Paul Pogba documentary? Yes, but that's not next but on I'm, the list. I'm, so. I'm involving it now so that we can not, whatever the opposite of derail you is, rerail you. I I'm did, re-railing I did watch your the, the Pogmentary. Okay. Let's it's talk about other replacement. Things. Oh, it's service. time for a break. <laughs> We're having a break now. Oh, we have returned after the break. There's one or two more, just one more transfer to get out of the way. Uh, Mark Roker leaving Bayern for Leeds. That sounds like a uh, exciting thing, John. Yeah, it's uh, another one of Victor Orta's reclamation projects. Oh, he has a number of these where he takes players who've maybe not had the career trajectory that they were anticipating, mm. and he tries to turn them around. And H- has he done that successfully up. with other players? Um, well, have you heard of Junior Furpo? Yeah, yeah, uh, he didn't. He didn't. Oh. get reclaimed. But oh. there's a lot of Leeds fans who think maybe this is the season when, when it will turn around. This leads me to an exciting question for both of you. Uh, if you were able to take charge over a reclamation project, uh, any team, any player, who do you think is out there who could do with a, a reclamation that you believe could have a successful career revival and beat away the current perceptions and expectation of their ability? Seb, I'm going to start with you. Deli Ali. Deli Ali. Yeah. yeah. Okay, now that seems reasonable. And what team would you try to revive his career at? Anywhere that Maurizio Pochettino was coaching, I think. Not right. because their relationship was always the most productive, but because he was the manager who got the most out of him at that level. And there is a player there, but that player has been badly lost along the way, yeah. I think. Okay, I like that. John? I would say Mark Roker, and I would bring him to Leeds. I think that would be my mm-hmm. reclamation project. We made a video about the Bundesliga tax the other day. Does, do that, me, does that relate here? Do you want is me to he, talk to you about who Mark Rocker is? Rocker, I should say. Uh, well, Rocker? I, I Rocker. do, because I remember Bayern Munich Rocker. making... Seem like we well, should? we should, because Bayern Munich made such a fuss about signing him, and then his, his time there was really a non-event. So I wanted to know kind of what happens yeah. next, really. So he's a young Spanish midfielder. I say Spanish, I think he's Catalonian now. I don't know. Yeah, he plays, he's, had played, he's played for them internationally. Oh. Um, but yeah, he was playing for Espanyol, was a, a sort of deep line playmaker, and everyone was talking about him a couple of seasons ago. Bayern bought him, and he's made 24 appearances, I think, in two seasons. So it hasn't gone well. And to the extent at which, when Bayern had a problem with deep lying midfielders in terms of injuries, he couldn't even get on the team in those situations. They were playing, I think they were playing Jamal Muziala, who's a, mm. not a deep lying playmaker ahead of him. So. Didn't seem to work the move to Bundesliga. And yeah, I suppose the question is if a player moves from La Liga to the Bundesliga and it doesn't work out, what does that say about his potential for succeeding in the Premier League? And I guess the question a lot of people have asked is about physicality. 
and, and it's an interesting question, right? Because a lot of people talk about the Premier League being being physical and what that means, and you know, some players just not being up to being Premier League players because of the physicality. I actually got a tweet here from Case von Hemmen on uh, on Twitter, a smart guy on Twitter. He says the manner in which the Premier League is physical is not the manner in which people think of when they say physical. Uh, and he said the best teams do not have the largest, strongest midfielders. Overwhelmingly, league challenging sides in the last decade have had midfielders composed of intelligent, technical players. It's physically demanding in that it's exhausting from an endurance and recovery standpoint. Mm. Um, so I thought this might be an interesting... rather than yeah. brawn. What, what is it about a midfielder's physicality that makes him able to, to fit in? And uh, having watched a bit of Mark Rocker, he, he is on the maybe on the slower end of the spectrum. Mm. Uh, he's not the most snappy mover, I explosive. think. Explosive. Explosive, yeah. yeah. His acceleration is... Um, it isn't necessarily the best and he maybe doesn't have the best straight line speed I would say sure. so I, I guess that's the question right <laughs> what what sort of physicality do you need to play in the Premier League what sort Stamina. of physicality do you need to play in Jesse Marsh's team and, yeah. and, and how will he suit that that is true I mean can you answer that question though because uh, you've set it up for yourself <laughs> and it is quite interesting so, so Jesse Marsh has played with a double pivot so far at Leeds United mm. and it's it's interesting because I think as a double pivot it's not what a lot of people think of when they think of a double pivot so it's not it's not that you're going to try and get two really defensive players in there and 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 sort of clog up the central spaces a lot of the the role of the double pivot for the Jesse Marsh team is being able to play penetrative passes get it get the ball forward so Jesse Marsh is someone who uses counter pressing so it's not about retaining possession so much as getting the ball into those advanced areas where mm. you can then you can then either d- directly attack the goal or if the ball is turned over you sort of fall on the ball and, and counter press and then sort of generate chaos and try and attack in that sort of counter attacking moment so Rocco will be good from that point of view because he's very very good at playing those progressive passes uh, I guess the question is like, what do we think he will be like when he has to do the defensive side of the game, mm. um, which I think is maybe a little bit more up for a question, but there is always the possibility that you can play a more defensive player alongside him and that might ameliorate some of the problems. Yeah. Okay. Interesting stuff. Fine. Frankie de Jong still rumbling on there, Seb. Uh, there've been a few things written about this over the week. It's quite an interesting situation, I suppose, specifically as it relates to Barcelona and their apparent need or not need, depending on who you believe, to sell players or not sell players. Again, depending on, I think, which team you support. Uh, What is that situation, please? So, obviously, this was a a topic last year too. This is the uh, La Liga cost controls returning to the news cycle. And the cutoff point for the process of evaluation and calculation to begin is the 30th of June. And Barcelona still very much have troubling financial issues, big wage bill, Uh, not a lot of money to spend next season. And so Man United, who very much want to sign Frankie de Jong, find themselves in a kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't situation because on the one hand, they had a dreadful season and so fans quite understandably want to see a, a small army of new, better players march through the door, particularly given how many players have left on free transfers. And yet, the longer they leave it, the better their negotiating position would seem to become. So a delay is kind of... It's what they should be doing, really, because the thing that Man United have been accused of most often in the past is overpaying, paying what they've been told by clubs they're buying from. I suppose the Harry Maguire situation is probably the best example of that. 
But they've also been accused of taking too long. Yeah. So it does, it feels like a, a the worst possible situation for them to be in, uh, in that taking too long is the right thing to do. Yeah. But also overpaying is... It you know, feels like, on the one hand, a deserved legacy of underperformance over the past decade but also unfortunately in this situation just completely unavoidable because they can't do anything without being criticized for it because also they've got a new manager in there who um uh, as the cliche goes uh, when you're when you're when you come into your first pre-season at a club you want presumably a settled squad you want to know what your components are what your tools are to work with as early as possible preferably before you go off on tour not sure where Man United are going this season, but I'm sure they're off somewhere. And at the moment, Eric Ten Hag is seeing players leave and nobody coming in, which is less than ideal. Yeah, so, I also thought, you know, when we play, we've already talked about uh, uh, Vieira signed for Arsenal. It's kind of clear, I think, that Arsenal's main search at the moment is for a, is for a striker, someone to come and mm-hmm. replace Lacazette. Uh, and yet, uh, out of the blue... They have, they've signed this other attacking player as well, um, showcasing what I think most football clubs' ability is of focusing on different players at the same time, pushing through different deals at the same time. I, I, I don't want to unfairly criticise Manchester United because I don't know the the ins and outs of it, but it does always they do always have the feel of a team that really can only focus on one transfer at a time. And if that, I think one of the things that I've seen supporters worry about publicly is that if the Frankie de Jong transfer does need to take a long time uh, for it to make sense, are they going to not focus on other well, positions that might be needed? To so well? with that in mind, I was reading uh, an article on The Athletic this morning, which uh, it was about the exchange Richard Arnold, a uh, new chief executive, had with a group of fans over the weekend. But included between one of the par- between two of the paragraphs even, it was a, a chart which showed how many members of United's technical structure have left over the past couple of years. And the kind of, I know replacements have been brought in, but with that sort of one thing at once criticism in mind, you do wonder whether there's a little bit of um, an expertise vacuum somewhere that prevents the sort Mm -hmm. of the the club from performing as it should. And Arsenal, if you remember before, sort of during that period of great change, before the new signings came in last year, there was all that executive reshuffling and several rounds of it actually. And so joining dots without really properly understanding the situation from my perspective, you could see, right, well, that's a club that's now reaping the benefits of having a joined up, properly aligned technical coaching structure. Whereas Manchester United still feels a little bit chaotic. It still feels like they're in that that mindset where they're just one player away or one appointment away and this saviour here is going to come and everything's going to be better. Whereas actually, typically success seems to be the legacy of a lot of years of correct thinking or proper judgment, all those yeah. kind of things. Um, so I don't know. But then look, in United's defence, concluding a deal for someone like Frankie de Jong for... I don't know, 70 to 80 million euros with a club like Barcelona who are very political, also with a very nebulous sort of financial situation. That isn't easy, is it? And it very, very rarely is. So it's tricky. And also, it seems as if the the interest in De Jong didn't exist before the end of the season, didn't exist before Ten Hag's appointment. I certainly hadn't heard of his name in connection with United in any credible way before Ten Hag arrived. So this seems to be in an era where a lot of these big deals are done six months, 18 months, a year in advance, this seems to be being put together very, very quickly. So that's tricky. No, that's a, that's a, that's a good point. And also, you know, one of the things I got from watching Pogmentary was, um, you know, just some of the, you get a bit of a better insight into the day-to-day and how, how things that you might not consider when you're talking about footballers uh, do have a big impact. You mentioned there 
<clears throat> a turnover of staff, um, people in the back room, Manchester United leaving, being replaced. It doesn't really matter how talented those new people are. Anybody listening to this who has a job knows what kind of turbulence or impact can occur when one of their colleagues leaves and is, is replaced. And we've had some of that here recently. We've got producer Jamie is new to the team today. And it's frankly, it's been an absolute nightmare. He's awful. <laughs> I, like, I, JJ's gone on holiday as soon as hiring him, which just, you know, seems like two fingers up to me and John, <laughs> leaving him to clean up his dirty work. He's insisting on being called Mr. Jamie, which I won't do, by the way. And I'm in charge here. He really needs to buck his ideas up, and I'm sure he will uh, get used to what it's like uh, working here, working at a, a top-level professional team, <laughs> <laughs> really professional stuff. Um, but, you know, it, I think uh, it does. Those sorts of uh, minor things perhaps aren't considered. You sort of think when it comes to a football club, you take away one sporting director and replace them with another, and on day one they should have the answer to absolutely everything. It's, it just doesn't work like that. People are... People are human beings. Anyway, very interesting stuff. Uh, do you want to talk about this crypto sponsors thing? Uh, oh, no, I'll tell you what we should do. Let's talk about the Richard Arnold thing. You mentioned it there, yeah, Seb, didn't yeah. you? John, what happened with Richard Arnold over the, the weekend? I saw some Twitter videos. Yeah, so Richard Arnold is the new Ed Woodward. Mm -hmm. um, By which you mean the, the sort of vice chairman, executive, Manchester United person. Yeah. yeah. The guy who's in charge, who everyone blames. Yeah. And uh, a, a group of fans belonging to that, I think they call the 1958 Club, yeah. something like that. Right. Um, sounds like a wine club to me, but I thought they it. weren't connected to that team, were they? No, they're they're, they're, they're not connected to um, the uh, Man United Supporters, Supporters Trust. Trust. Um, they're a different group. Oh, yeah. okay. I see. The, okay, the People's Republic of Mancunia, rather than the Mancunian People's Republic. Sure, whatever, sure. You know. Let's not get into the the ins and outs of Manchester United Supporters Clubs, but they essentially were going to go round to his house and protest outside. Mm. Um, apparently, he lives in a, a leafy Cheshire village which That's i found surprised. funny like yeah. having recently lived in cheshire every village in cheshire i is think leafy. From is leafy you yeah. do have leaves in all the villages Le all of the villages have leaves yeah. um so that makes a lot of sense anyway these guys were going to go and pitch up outside his front door with i don't know yeah yeah try to be seen stuff. through the foliage and he he thought you know i don't want people coming around my house and standing outside my, my door so i'll Fair go and head them off at the pub where they're they're gathering their forces. So. Is it the landlord of the pub called him to tell him, right, that that uh, there were these people <laughs> gathering? <laughs> I have to say, I, I forget about, you know, the ins and outs of the situation. Anyone going down to a pub to confront people who are about to come to their house, many men <laughs> who are about to come and stand outside their house and protest them angrily or, or however angrily they were going to be, that's quite a brave thing to do. I'm not sure I would do that. Yeah, I don't think I would do that either. Did he go on his own? Seemingly. I, I mean, yeah. I think there's no, there's no suggestion that he went with any beer. security or anything like that. It's quite a brave thing to yeah, do, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Also, uh, he, he what then spent an hour talking to them or so? Yeah, and there's various clips and videos that that were taken, which he, which the I, I guess he'd asked them not to do, but then obviously inevitably it happened. And on the one hand, like the optics of it look good because you kind of, as you said, it's it's, it's someone at the club taking the fans seriously and trying to explain the club to them. Mm. Uh, on the other hand, you're never going to come across well, I don't think, in that sort of situation. So if you actually read the quotes, a lot of them like don't make a huge amount of sense. Mm. Um, and you're sort of reading between the lines and yeah, when, when they're written, you know, whenever, whenever anything that you say written down, spoken is written down, it exactly. looks weird. So particularly over an hour in yeah, a pub, yeah. Mm. but yeah, it, it, it was 
perceive that he sort of put the boot in a little bit on Ed Woodward and and comments made about how Manchester United have spent a lot of money. There's a I think there's a football is it CIS football laboratory whatever yeah. it's called yeah. observatory yeah observatory report which went which went out suggesting that Manchester United are the club who spent the most. Uh, on players and sure. recoup the least, yeah. So his his argument was, well, we've we've spent a lot of money. What what more? What more do you want us to do? It's not yeah. it's not necessarily the the issue of spending money here. It's it's about specialism and made a few comments about how you know it's my job to do various things, but not by the players as well. So yeah, get away from my house, basically. <laughs> Please don't come to my house. <laughs> the thing I find interesting about it is the response to you know you mentioned it there, like the idea that he's supposedly kind of stitched up or put the boot into Woodward a bit. You would, wouldn't you? I like the, the response to it being, it makes me think of it's like a kind of, you know, like a, a playground argument has taken place. Somebody said something and then everyone listening has gone, ooh, you know. Of course but he would. Also, he made several mistakes which made things really difficult and like have, have a kind of a, a legacy yeah. or continuing effect after he's gone. I appreciate that those two people are, are, are friends or are friendly or, or, or whatever. But if you're having to have an honest conversation about the reasons why some things are difficult or more difficult than they should be at Manchester United, the idea that you wouldn't tell what I, I imagine I believe to be the truth, which is that, yeah, some of Edward Wood's actions have uh, made things more difficult now than they might otherwise have been. Why wouldn't you say that? You also can't win, Joe. When you leave, I'm going to stick the boot in. <laughs> I'm going to be like that Joe, that Joe Divine. Does that ring a bell? Yeah. Terrible management. Does that ring a bell? That does That's the bell. quote that everybody's... What, what were you going to say? You can't well, he win. He can't win, though, because one of the, the main charges against... One of the main charges against Edward Wood was that he was a company man, that he was a sort of a, a patsy for the Glazer family. So mm. either Richard Arnold... And I don't know enough about Richard Arnold to assess whether he's going to be a good or bad chief executive, but if he defends Edward Wood, he's accused of being just another Edward Wood. Now, yeah. if he criticizes him, and the quote that's drawn attention is, says that the fans were talking about uh, recruitment and uh, Richard Arnold is saying, what we do is I just hand the money to uh, John Murta and um, Eric Ten Hag and they get on with it. Because, you know, you don't want me picking players, do you? Which is, and I'm paraphrasing, but obviously that's about Ed Woodward. So either he defends Ed Woodward or he criticizes him. And in either case, it becomes newsworthy and it becomes a pin, yeah. um, you know, it becomes a quote that's pinned on him. So I got a little bit of sympathy. Also, it's a shame that it was filmed because it just ensures that it won't happen again. Yeah. Because, and I, I get the temptation. If I was that in, in that situation, I can't promise I wouldn't do the same. But if you have an agreement not to not to film something and then someone does it, it just means that the person in the risk of us world that football's become, he's not going to do that again. And so you kind of break that line of communication. Yeah. And that's a shame, I think. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's an hypocrisy because okay. we're now talking about it and we're loving all the quotes. So I completely uh, accept that. But... That is true. Something I also feel a little bit uncomfortable about how the tone of our conversation feels like we are defending him yeah. and saying what a great guy he is and was. I don't I know. I have no idea know. whether he's a good guy or not. And, no idea. Know, Man United yeah. seem, uh, you know, like a club that do some things wrong and are therefore easy to criticise. I suppose my, I, I, I'm, trying, you know, sort of tossing around the idea in my head of uh, would uh, is there a sort of situation? What is the situation in which it's okay to protest outside someone's house? Like, what do they? What, where's the line? What do they have to have done? If you feel like it's, if it's a politician, you can protest outside of their house. I think that's probably okay. If it's an executive of a football club, particularly a new executive of a football club, who may or may not be responsible for things that have come before, what do they have to have done <laughs> for it to be sort of... Not okay, because I appreciate, like, it's fine, you can go and do that if you want to, but for it to be sort of justified. Because, you know, him going down to the pub to head them off is presumably partly because he thinks it's better 
than photographers coming to take pictures of them outside his house. Yeah, it's hard to know, really, isn't it? It's the lines of causality that I think start to blur. Because like you say, like, what do they expect him to do? They're, yeah. they're anti the glazers, so are they expecting him to sort of come out and, and, and talk to the glazers and say, you know, there's a bunch of lads outside my house who don't sure. like you owning my club? And the point that he made, actually, in the, in the conversation was that the, the glazers just aren't scared of anyone because there's nothing that anyone can really do to no. actually change things for them, even though he did, I suppose, talk about the impact it was having on sponsorship and stuff like that. But yeah, that's, that's kind of the point. The point is, is that the glazers make a lot of money and they will continue to make a lot of money. Mm. And as long as that's happening, unfortunately for Manchester United fans, and yeah, even as a Leeds fan, I, 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 I feel for fans who have to deal with club ownership, yeah. which forgets the fact that clubs are football clubs, right? They are group. That's what club means. It's a, it was a, a group of members who all had a shared interest. And I feel as though what's happened, and we've talked about this, I guess, a lot in this podcast, it's just what's happened is that football has gone from being a convivial communal experience with, with no sort of underlying ulterior motives so now being run by people who run the clubs as businesses and mm. whilst that gives us lots of good things which is we get to see really elite players playing for certain teams and and uh, we get to see football at its finest in that sense in terms of the the actual talent that you can get it, you also lose a lot as well and so I, I always do feel for fans of clubs where they have lost that the element a little bit but at the same time it does feel a little bit like Manchester United fans hate the owners because they're not winning rather than because they want these convivial experiences of, of community I don't know I mean I, I think that I think um, one of the things that you said there really hits home is that the players aren't afraid of anybody and that must be incredibly frustrating not because you can't make someone afraid of you. I just mean that because you can't impact the way that someone runs something that you love or that you have a great deal of affection for, mm. that is yeah. that must be a very impotent feeling. And I don't know how you cope with without that. Without what, like, you know, without metaphorically burning your own house. Yeah, down. and I, I, I've got a great deal of sympathy in it. That cuts across any kind of tribalism or any rivalry. I, I just think it's very, very sad if you've got something which has been taken over and the associations with it have been changed and you are powerless to fight back in any meaningful way i do think there's a line like i one of the things about the richard arnold situation was i read this morning that one of the reasons one of the justifications for going down to the pub was because he had his uh, wife and child or children plural um at home and so he didn't want that outside which is very human and natural and normal i get that but it's a it's a very difficult situation. It's also very typical of what football's become that you have this kind of ill-defined protest and, well, we don't know what we're really going to do, but we're going to do something even if it doesn't really have a proper yeah. shape to it. And that feels... Well, that's why it's interesting. Like to, to, yeah, I agree. I mean, that's what you know. You said before, like, it's not clear what they, they want. I would say that's true, but also, firstly, I'd, I don't think protest necessarily needs to, uh, uh, you know, require something direct to come from it. And also, the other thing to say is that um, you have to feel angry about something to go and protest yeah, it. Yeah. You know, you and I didn't go out this weekend to protest golf for no reason, because you, that makes it sound like we did go it, out. It, it did sound like that a little bit, yeah. <laughs> point I'm making is that these people are clearly upset about yeah. it because they've literally gone to a place to do a thing. I don't leave my house for, for almost anything, you know, <laughs> unless I'm going to die because I haven't got enough food to eat or, you know, toilet paper. Toilet paper is a big one, isn't it? You know, leave, that, leave the house with toilet paper. Start buying more at the same time. And then you, again, you can reduce the number of times that you have to leave the house. <laughs> but uh, the fact that they've gone at all, 
you know suggests that, that they they feel very very strongly about it. And I think that is um, also yeah, like that that along the lines of what you that thing about said. like Man United fans get a, a tough press because obviously like the, the typical response is well you're not winning the Premier League anymore or every season so therefore you know uh, cry me a river kind of thing. But then all fandom is relative. Like in the sense that, okay, so yeah. if my club stops competing for the top four slash six places, I have a sulk in, you know, whilst they're playing mid-table football. That's relevant too. You can't just dismiss everybody's grievance because, you know, your own side might be in League 2 or League 1 or a non-league. I, I get the kind sure. of that there is a hierarchy of, you know, seriousness in football situations. Of course I do. Can I add to that yeah. as well, just by saying, like that, that, that I, I really agree with what you've said. That is a form of well, you, you know, you're you're the guy who's all about policing people's emotions as it relates to football. But it's a form of of like uh, people trying to rationalise somebody else's emotion. Yeah. And if like the only natural endpoint of that is to not watch football because it's a stupid thing, right? It's the same as like saying, well, should don't be unhappy that your team hasn't done as well as they would normally do because you know you could be Stoke, it could be much yeah, worse, you could be Colwyn Bay FC. But make it broader. You're rationalising my emotional response to it. Like if I rationalise my emotional response to football generally, I can rationalise it all the way down to n- no emotional response to the stupid thing that is happening in front of me. Why? Why should I care at but all? But if you get used to something, make a stand standard living argument if you get used to living in a certain way or you get used to doing a certain thing and that thing that you enjoy you had a dog you enjoyed the dog the dog died why are you upset you were fine before you had a dog i I wasn't going to use that example but in a way like it's a if anything changes and it doesn't change for the better you're going to have an emotional response to it no matter you can still appreciate that other people have it worse you can still appreciate that this team who you know are only drawing 4,000 fans every weekend that is a more serious situation in the kind of the the neutral dispassionate sense absolutely but if something changes that matters to you you're going to have a reaction to it it's very normal this is the Spursiest argument I've <laughs> You're just, you know, when you were in the wilderness of finishing in sixth there place, is, there is. you were sad about not getting the Champions yeah, League while Leeds fans were there for 16 seasons out of the Premier League. And yeah, sure. you still you still had it bad, I guess. Look but at you go. Is it worth talking deep. about 50 plus one? Because I feel like we talked before about fans just feeling disenfranchised and disempowered. And mm. I suppose with 50 plus one in Germany, there's, there's questions about like how impactful you can actually be, but you do still have that sense that yeah. the club is yours. And I think that's what's been lost in, in British football, for sure. This idea that I have some kind of stake in this club rather than football now in, in the UK feels like going to the opera. You know, you see something happening and and it's there and you're, you're sort of sat in the gods up at mm. the top and something happens down there. Whereas my experience of watching football in Germany is it's very different. Like you do feel part of the team whenever I've been to see Freiburg play after the game they the, the players you know mingle with the ultras and and they they have sort of ritual stuff that they do together and the players walk back through back to their cars through the crowd as well and I, I know Freiburg is probably an outlier case but you still get that sense of you know the club belongs to us it is ours and we do have a say in how it's run I feel like 50 plus one is a little bit of a fail safe like you have these have these for want of a better word you have that identity each club for better or worse whatever it may be and 50 plus one prevents it from being distorted or changed or taken away from you i would stop short of ever describing 50 plus one as a paradise because i think it's very very easy to make arguments on both sides of it for and against and those are all really well-known arguments but at the same time if what matters to you in football is this idea of a club in your own image or a club that's built around your own personality or one that your personality gravitates towards, then 50 plus one is your answer because it stops somebody coming in 
taking the kind of the value in your club and contorting it in a way that suits them or benefits their agenda or their interests. And I think that's a very, very valuable thing. But it's it's a complex argument. And also in Germany, of course, like, you know, as John knows, like you have some fairly silly exemptions to it. And it's a complicated situation because of the relationship between big corporations. I don't mean Red Bull in this. I mean, sort of Volkswagen, for instance, and Wolfsburg or, you know, the biopharmaceutical company in Leverkusen. It's difficult. It also reminds me of a proportional representation yeah. in a sense, because, you know, it's this, a, a good, similar sort of situation as it relates to England. You know, uh, the two major political parties are never going to vote for proportional representation because it takes away the reason that they can guarantee yeah. at least one of them has power. And I think the idea that the Premier League could move towards a 50 plus one model it would only ever happen through some ex- external force. We've seen the the uh, Tracy Crouch report come back after uh, well, I guess initiated after the after the Super League, and I think there's some reference towards a fan ownership model such as that. But it's certainly not going to be something which is Im- implemented. It's certainly also not something that wealthy Premier League owners are going to initiate themselves. I think it's a, a mindset thing, right? I think that's what I take away from the difference between German football and mm. and UK football from what I've seen. And that is that in Germany, there is this sense that, you know, what matters isn't necessarily winning everything. Um, obviously, that depends on which club you support. But in the UK now, I think it's just got to the point where people don't care what a club does as long as they're yeah. spending money, making their team better, making the squads better, and, and you're competing at some level. And that, again, that's fine. But I do think that that has that whole shift of a mindset from being like, this is the club that I support because it's the town where I grew up and the people who I know support it, etc., cetera, has, has been eroded away. And we've got to this point now where it, it very much is like supporting the stock market in, in a lot of respects. Whereas in Germany, mm-hmm. you still have that sense of actually there are things that are more important than winning. And I just think that that mindset simply comes from the systems of governance that, that different clubs adopt. What would you support on the stock market though? I think I'd support <laughs> beans. Beans, yeah, half-baked beans. Maybe. They are quite good. What about you, Seb? Uh, wood chip or something? Frozen orange juice. Frozen orange juice, yeah. If we had a second break... I think we should have one. Let's have one, but then we, we've, we haven't got time to talk about all those. We don't, we don't have to we talk said about we might miss. I mean, there's... But we will talk about the Pogmentary. Yeah. If only just to clarify. <laughs> Let's have a break. Okay, we've had a break now, and we're back to clarify Pogmentary. Pogumentary. Pogmentary. What could the possible branding related reasons be for going straight for pogmentary and not for pogumentary who made this Was series it, wasn't it pog <laughs> was it paul pogba let's have a look at pogmentary Is it, if it's a non-english language company then maybe they just so it's got 2.1 out of 10 on imdb <laughs> for a start uh, a glimpse into the life of Paul Pogba, the influential world-class French footballer. It certainly does what it says on the tin, eh? It does do that. It stars Paul Pogba. As himself. And others, yeah. What's, what's, what, let, me, let me find the details about this. Here we go. This is, I don't want the cast. Do they call it that? Is that what the title yes. is? The title is The Pogmentary. And I'm saying P-O-G-M-E-N-T-A-R-Y. But surely... Surely it would be the pogumentary. I mean, I'm with you. I tweeted What's this. Happened? Not Did you tweet two this? days ago? Yeah, really. This is. I a, said, this is an surely it's pogumentary. I'm not as original as I thought. It's okay, that's a real it's shame. okay. It I've got the receipts be. though. So I just, I would love to know because it's also it's so obvious that at some point, at the very least, 
two people will have had a conversation about this. And maybe the conversation will have even, it's the title of the film, maybe it will have included Paul Pogba himself. It may well have done, you know, as a, as a, as a final check. Or a he's disappointed of, you know, that he's, he was the sitting water. there when it came out and was like, I went should for have gone for Pogumentary. But somebody would have had a conversation. We said, oh, should we, should we just lo- lose the you? And someone said, why? And the other person said, well, it just sounds better, doesn't it? And they're like, yeah, but... <laughs> you're replacing a word with two syllables with word with one syllable. That's, it you're not onto a winner, are no, you? I, do, I, do you know I what agree. the bigger conversation is here? It's that at some point, mm. somebody decided <laughs> to discard the actual name of the very, 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 very famous football player and use something which just makes it yeah. more vague. No, that's true, though. And that is because it's a, a, the, the, a, a tribute to the brand, the strength of the brand that you can put Pog before something. No. And people know it. See, is, I think that's where the Pog misjudgment Pog. occurs. Like, I don't think it is. Were you at any point confused who this film no, was about? No, but had I, had <laughs> I arrived on Netflix... Oh. <laughs> Did you think it was about so, Pog? <laughs> you thought it was about the, the, child, the childhood <laughs> phenomenon that we, we experienced I as young but if I'd come to it fresh on, on, on Amazon... And by the way, when I lighted on the topic and it said, this is not available in your country, the relief that the decision not to watch it be taken out of my hands was absolutely amazing. Flicking through German Amazon. It just says, you cannot watch it. I just thought that it might... What what could this be? Is this a German documentary about pop? It's not that. It's not that. It's just that how do you come to it fresh? Who would be confused? I would have been less confused had it just been Paul Pogba my journey, the decision, my Man United hell, whatever. That is a really bold... You know, Seb used to be in sports marketing. You really? wouldn't guess it, would you? Based on just how the things he says. You'd think, my journey, the decision. <laughs> this is why you're not allowed to title YouTube. It is actually, it's one of the reasons, yeah. Yeah, that's definitely yeah. true. Well, anyway, aside from the fact that it should obviously be called the Pogumentary... Maybe it's maybe it's offensive in some language. Pogument. But then you could have just gone with Pogbamentary because it's still Pogbamentary. Pogbamentary still like at least has it still has like and it's got his whole name in it. And it it solves the problem Seb had. If Seb had seen Pogbamentary, he wouldn't have been confused about who the film. He'd be like, "Who's Pogbament?" Yeah, Yeah, he would be (laughs) confused. Anyway, it's not great. No. How much did you watch? I liked it. Two episodes. I watched two episodes, totaling sixty minutes. and of the 60 minutes I'd say about like 20 of them are not like an advert the rest is is sort of like adverts for Paul Pogba just kind of chained and lots of uh, there's a lot of animation in it they've kind of animated it well I imagine a lot more than his childhood but I've sort of mainly gone through the bits where he's talking about when he's younger they've animated it they haven't yeah, just no, got him dressing up as a school it. kid that would be cool <laughs> that, would be, that would have been funny a live action uh, re, uh, recreation what was the, um, no, what was the um, moment in episode one which you thought that's good I need to watch episode two now there must have been a moment. There were several. I don't. This is the thing. Like two point one out yeah. of ten. That sounds is, harsh. Is suggestive. <laughs> that sounds harsh. This is the IMDb uh, uh, rating, and that 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 will be people's. That's how IMDb works. That's, that's Manchester yeah, United yeah, fans. Yeah, yeah. That is yeah. exactly what that is. That's individuals' ratings. But that is suggestive of two things: one, that they're upset Man United fans, and two. Um, that they haven't put the work in to enjoy it. Some things aren't <laughs> passive, right? You're saying it's their fault for not I, enjoying I, I it. I am. I do think this with many, many things of the visual media, right? Uh, I believe some films, like, a, I don't know, a film with Danny McBride in, 
is passive and you let it wash over you. It's got Will Ferrell in it and he's going to make funny yeah. faces and noises. Don't get me wrong. This is not criticism. I, I enjoy those films greatly. And I watch them and they wash over me like a warm sea on a nice sunny day. Warm sea, wash, wash, wash. All I've got to do, lie on the beach. That's it, yeah? Some art <laughs> you've got to put more work into. But the pogmentary, <laughs> like other forms of art... Uh, you have to put the work in to get something out of it. Obviously, an ordinary person might watch this and think, well, that's just a big advert for Paul Pogba. True. That is true. It is It is just an advert. But um, a very special person like me might watch that and just see just little glimpses, just little glimpses here and there, a little bit of body language. I, I, I watch them when they're sat around the dinner table with their friends in the not at all staged <laughs> scene of when Paul Pogba comes home from a football match and his wife is there with her friends that he sits with them around the table and talks about stuff in the not at all staged scene or the not at all staged scene where uh, Antoine Griezmann calls on FaceTime and Paul Pogba answers the call at the dinner table and then there's sort of three different conversations going on uh, at once not at all staged um, but there's these little moments you know You're suggesting that he doesn't eat dinner yeah, that's what I'm saying he doesn't or no, use no dinner now, what I'm saying is that um, even though the, these are, are you know are, are, are cr created truths within them there are deeper truths you know you can see <laughs> the little bits of body language the way that he interacts with somebody the way so for example uh, Raffaella Pimenta who is the uh, the lawyer that's being talked about a lot at the moment she's the I think in Italian press they've decided to call her the heiress the heiress to uh, Mina Raiola's uh, empire she's worked with Mina Raiola for 20 years she features in this uh, documentary I've never seen her video of her before but she is interviewed in it there's scenes of her arriving at Paul Popper's house they embrace like a uh, uh, family he, he he describes her as an aunt like there's some you know again like she's there to say Paul Pogba's great and here's his side of the story whatever but like beyond the obvious stuff beyond what they are telling you the things that they don't think they're telling you but they can't remove from the documentary without taking all humans out of it are really interesting like they have seemingly a, 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 a genuine kind of familial relationship. There's a, a scene where Paul Pogba is on FaceTime with Mina Raiola. The way that they talk to each other is quite touching. It seems like a genuine, authentic relationship. And I think, you know, like I was saying to you before, even I know it's we say these things sometimes about how, well, a football player might not want to move to a different country because they've got kids in the school or because their wife lives there and they like it and whatever, <laughs> other, other reasons. <laughs> You're suggesting footballers uh, live with their wives, well with with their wives. Uh, but the point I'm making is that even though we say those things they, they tend not to go into my mind until I see it happening in front of me the first thing that you know, the reason like you asked me Seb why did I watch episode 2 because the, first, the main thing that episode 1 left me with was A that Paul Pogba has only left Manchester for 4 years since he was 16 years old right Obviously, he likes it. It's just not something that I think about because he, he, the discussion around him is, oh, he, you know, he wants more mm -hmm. money or he wants to feel better about himself. He wants, you know, it's all very uh, uh, individualistic, self-centered. That's the discussion that happens around him. He's lived in Manchester since he was 16 yeah. years old. It's his home, right? He likes it there. His wife lives there. His children will presumably go to school like, there like, as well. 
I think they're too, oh, maybe too, okay. slightly too young to go to school. But yes, they, they, they would be doing, they, they have lives yeah. there, right? And also these characters that are described in the press as sort of, uh, you know, supervillains uh, from comic books. Mina Raiola is this terrible, terrible man whose only desire is to take away the happiness of children and football club executives. I just, you know, it seems like a, somebody who I'm sure has his faults, as we've all read about and discussed before, but at the very least has a, has a genuine emotional relationship with with Paul Pogba, there's a reason that all of his clients loved him in the way that uh, the way that they did, and I think it's just you know even though it's obviously a 2.1 out of 10 advert, it still does give you the opportunity to see the human being behind the brand again. We circle back to it being called Pogmentary, <laughs> human error, human error there. That's very stirring. I'm not going to go and watch it. Mm-hmm. But. No, you don't need to because I've told you everything. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I'll finish it though. If you could just get the clips of those, of those, you know, <laughs> those ten, tendentious little movements towards one another that you've sure. recognised the, the that human is... quality of like togetherness. <laughs> that, that it's like a it sounds like a Werner Herzog production. But this is why I, I believe in the uh, the death of the author there, John, because uh, the people who've made this documentary. They haven't made what I've just described. Not intended. I fucking yeah, made that exactly. when watching it. I, I'm i the reason that what just came out of it came out of it. It's not to do with them. They've just put loads of stuff on a plate and expected everyone to gobble it all up. Not me. I've just gone for the peas, mm. you know, the delicious, nutritious peas. Anyway, that's the pogumentary. Um, but I'll be watching the rest of it. That's good. I think there's a uh, four. Seeing as you're the episodes. only one who ever got anything out of it, or That's the right true. things out of it, it's <laughs> yeah. probably good that you've watched the whole thing. And I will, I will watch more. I like him. Yeah, I, like I like him, him too. too. I think he's a smart, a smart guy. I like him, and uh, loves kids. <laughs> <laughs> and he lives with his wife. <laughs> That's my realization from watching a human story. Man loves children. There we go. Anyway, that's the end now. I think unless. Uh, we didn't get around to talking about Juan Leo leaving. Maybe we'll do that another time. Premier League 2. I don't even know what that is. So maybe we'll talk about that another time there, Seb Stafford Bloor. Uh, but uh, uh, Dan Kishun, um and uh, Alfie Sen. Yes. Yes. Um, anything you wanted to say to the listeners before no, you go? No, really. No. 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 Great. John McKenzie. Jonathan Ross Dog McKenzie. Yeah? Yes. Working like class Seb. Joe. Hmm? Joe, Joe, Joe with the glasses. Yeah. No, no, not Joe doesn't need glasses because he sees into the heart of humans. <laughs> That's, That's what we've learned today. That is true. You just, the little micro, the little micro body language things, mm. you know, very small. I mean, I would miss all of that for sure. Well, that's what happens when you haven't got a real personality. <laughs> uh, John McKenzie. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Producer Jamie. Hoping for um, a better showing over the next week or so. I won't be calling him Mr. Jamie. Maybe I will now. That's quite funny. Mr. <laughs> Mr. Jamie, thank you. And uh, thanks to uh, whoever's editing the audio. Maybe it's Adonis. Maybe it's our good friend Adonis. We don't know. We just don't know at this point. Uh, but we will be back next week to discuss more. Um, lots of people asking me at the moment when Sensible Transfers is starting. It's starting soon. Pretty much throughout the month of July, uh, Sensible Transfers will be there for people to two enjoy. Two weeks away. Two weeks. Um, two weeks away. And we've had a lot of fun preparing for them this year. Uh, so we We've had some fun. To showing some. you that. Yeah, it's yeah. been... It's been a lot of preparation, so it's been some fun. I mean, it's just, let's get the ratios right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, the fun is in the micro interactions <laughs> between the humans that we made along the way. We'll find. Made friends. Yeah. <sighs> That's the end now. See you later. Bye. <laughs>